Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast where we remember to clean our cuts and scrapes and look at pus with the distrustful scorn it deserves. Because today we're talking about flesh-eating bacteria, which is a horrifying name and a horrifying disease and condition. It's going to be great. It's going to be a fun episode. But before we dig into today's episode, of course, I'm Mia. And I'm Salem. How have you been, my dear co-host, over the holidays? I've been good. I've been chilling. I've been chillaxing. I've been relaxing. Um, I feel great. I am dangling my feet right now. <laughs> yeah, you're in a good mood. I'm in a good mood today. How have you been? I've been great. It's been Christmas. Christmas. I got a smartwatch uh, from, 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 me. from you, which I'm very happy about because I, I like gadgets and trinkets. You also got a backpack. I did get a backpack and I do love that backpack. I, can I talk about my presents? I'm yeah, really excited. Please do. Um, first of all, I got a puzzle. I love puzzle. I uh, feel like a kid again. It's really fun to get toys as an adult, I will say. And I also got a bunch of perfume samples because I don't wear perfume, but like I'm 27 turning 28. So I figured I should, I should maybe like invest in some nice perfumes. Mm-hmm. And they're the fancy, interesting question mark ones that smell like smoke and like gunpowder and like deer (laughs) like boar um so i'm really excited to go around smelling like a wild animal yeah Um, that's you have the energy of a wild animal for sure like a creature in the woods (laughs) so very exciting all right but should we just get into the episode no we shouldn't because we are going to thank our dear patrons before we start and in this episode we want to give a special shout out to Ketamina Nicotina. <laughs> For some reason, I'm singing the name this episode. It's a good name. We it's had a some really angst good... about how to say it in the least meme way. Why mean? That's the name. Mimi. Oh, Mimi. Like a meme way. Because like, mm-hmm. it's, it's Ketamina Nicotina. Like, what do you. It's, I... a, it's a good name. I love the name. Memorable. And if you are a patron, not only can you get a special chance for a shout out in the middle of an episode like Ketamina Nicotina, but you also get a special video version of the podcast where you get to see our lovely faces along with some other nice fun rewards. But before we get into the episode, I thought it would be cool to read a comment. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to start this new thing where we read a comment that we got um, on Spotify uh, because you all know I love reading them. So for the last episode, we got a comment uh, that said, the vivisected dog story still baffles me. How did the experiment come into being and what kind of people were performing it? Can't find a source for this though and would hate to blindly Google. LOL. <laughs> so, um, Mia, this was your part. So where's the? where did you read about that? As with any research topic when we write scripts for like uh, these episodes or for like a YouTube video that are usually... Like there are multiple different sources that are compiled into sort of like a general statement. But one that I got as a good like starting point was uh, an article called The Soul and the Nema in the Function of the Nervous System After Galen, which was published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine, volume 87, in July of 1994, uh, by an author called C.E. Quinn. Uh, but then Queen? another good Queen? source... Did you say Queen? Uh, C.E. Quinn. Like, like Q-I-U-N. Like Queen. Q-U-I-N. I can spell <laughs> Spelling. Spelling it's is harder no. than you Listen. think. Uh, but another one that I used quite significantly was uh, the book Introduction to Animal Rights by Gary Franchioni, mm-hmm. which isn't the most like I will say this like you would be correct in saying that like that's maybe not the most reliable source because it is very much like heavily weighted towards sort of like PETA style activism. Mm-hmm. Um, but that claim does not seem to be sort of like it, it doesn't stand in contrast with many other claims that are, that I've read in it like throughout the throughout the research process. Mm-hmm. So that one seems, th- that's where that comes from, essentially. Mm-hmm. But that claim specifically that Rene Descartes did that with animals comes from that book. Okay, but it sounds like the Quinn one is a good starting point. So if you want to, yeah. you know, start somewhere, I would start with that. Yeah. But with that being said, let's get into today's episode. Most of us have heard of flesh-eating disease or flesh-eating bacteria. This is something that has been sensationalized a lot in the media, so we're all like 
low-key scared of getting it. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when you're a kid and you're scared of uh, moving sounds. Oh yeah, quick, quick, quick sounds. It's, it's one of those. Yeah, ones. it's one of those things. Yeah, because um, we've all we've all like seen headlines being like flesh-eating flesh bacteria, bacteria in your hot tub, like yeah, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Um, I have and, a big segment about that, actually. Mm, and, and I think the name like definitely does not help. Like flesh-eating bacteria is not really something that you want to have on your body. But the name and the mystique surrounding this condition is mostly smoke and mirrors, I'm going to say. At least that was my impression after I looked a bit more deeply into this. I will talk about the potential consequences of this disorder if it's not treated correctly and so on. But my impression was like, that's it. At least in terms of what causes it. Because like I said, it can be pretty devastating and have long-term complications. And it has a pretty high mortality rate. It's about 30%. Even today. Even today. So definitely something to be aware of. So what we call flesh-eating disease is clinically known as necrotizing fasciitis. The most common cause is actually infection with a mix of bacteria, including Streptococcus pyogenes, which is the bacterium that causes strep throat. So it's not like this, you know, exotic bacteria that you find... I don't know. Like it's something. It's a very um, like a common common bacteria yeah. type. One thing I read that scared me was that the 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 bacteria that causes it, everyone, it's on everyone mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. You have it, dear listener, on you right now, and it's fine. But sometimes, it, like some people are unlucky and get like the infection spreads in a very unlucky way, and that's why I, I mean I guess you're gonna mention this also, mm-hmm. like how it relates to people with weak immune systems, for yeah, example. Yeah, exactly. But so it's pyogenes, but other bacteria types is, uh, include E. coli, Staphylococcus aureus, and the few species belonging to the Clostridium genus. All of these are quite common and pretty like frequently found in the environment. There are also cases in which the infection is caused by only one bacteria type and even a fungus. Oh, oh, that's horrifying. Yeah, but it's, it's really rare. Mostly yeah. it's the mix. And like you said, the condition usually occurs in people who are either already sick or have had a history of medical conditions that impair the immune system. Often it's people with diabetes mellitus, obesity, malnutrition, and advanced age. Those are pretty strong risk factors. Most cases start with trauma to the skin surface, like uh, people who have undergone surgery, people who have had acupuncture treatments recently, people who have a history of IV drug use, and even people who had like insect or animal or human bites. <laughs> um, you can also get it from just like a cut, like you, yeah, yeah, you fall, you fall. Yeah, exactly, you... like regular cuts and yeah. lacerations. But it can also be caused by events like childbirth or burns. In short, the bacteria enters the body for a break in the skin and travels to the fascial plane, which is the layer under the epidermis, dermis, and subcutaneous fat layer. And it's right above the muscle. The fascia... <laughs> the, the fascial plane mm-hmm. is where uh, Benito Mussolini goes when I, say, <laughs> when I do planar banishment on yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of fascism jokes there. The fascial plane involvement is also what gives it the name, necrotizing fasciitis. However, sometimes a break in the skin is not even necessary. The condition can also develop from non-penetrating trauma, such as from bruises and muscle strains, uh, combined with bacteremia, which is when you already have bacteria in the blood. So basically you have, you know, maybe a bruise, there's uh, an area of um, inflammation, bacteria travels there and just kind of spreads. It can be very unfortunate. Yeah. But I have heard also that that is significantly less yeah. common than like having a, like a break in the skin. Like yeah, that, it's, that a lot, is, it's a lot more rare, yeah. for sure. Anyway, in the fascial plane, the bacteria rapidly multiplies and spreads to the circulation and the lymphatic system, which leads to edema and venous thrombosis, which is when blood vessels become blocked. Edema and thrombosis compromises cellular metabolism and can lead to devascularization and tissue death. Because the infection is localized deep under the skin, it can spread quite extensively before it is visible on the surface, which often leads to a delay in treatment. Oh, I don't like that at all. <laughs> I don't like that at all. Because like yeah. when I read about this, like every picture I saw, and we've seen a lot of horrifying pictures on this research episode, mm. um, I always saw sort of like early stage, and I would see like a big red like uh, 
spot basically with like a black dot in the middle and I'm like oh that doesn't look great mm. but the fact that like there has been like a process before mm. it even gets to that stage mm. where it's just like no the viral load uh bacterial load is already like enormous yeah uh when you start seeing it which is awful often it gets misdiagnosed it's just um i think it's called cellulitis yeah so just um, a superficial skin infection and this is why like a lot of people get diagnosed quite late there's a delay in treatment and that's also what causes high mortality rates like this misdiagnosis problem yeah. right so that's yeah so that's a, a big issue with it if the treatment is delayed the condition can advance into septic shock and multi-organ failure and death so diagnosing it early is um is really important in terms of clinical presentation, initial symptoms are quite general. Flu symptoms such as nausea, fever, dizziness, and general malaise, as well as pain at the injury spot. But the pain is usually a lot more severe than what one would expect from the looks of the injury. After three to four days, however, the infected area may start to swell and appear red and hot to the touch. Oh, it's not good when it's hot to the oh, touch. You are like something's about, cooking mm, in there. Mm, it's not good. There's going to be a pretty graphic description coming uh, up, so get ready. Oh, well, I have my own later, so it's going to be great. <laughs> um, so it becomes red and hot to the touch, and the skin might gradually begin to darken and form fluid-filled blisters. The infected area may eventually start leaking fluid and develop a foul smell, indicating tissue necrosis. Mm -hmm. Soon, the pain might start subsiding which sounds like a good thing, but actually it's not because it's caused by the peripheral nerves becoming damaged. At this point, you are in big trouble. And um, <laughs> Go to the doctor being like, you, oh, that's not good. You are in trouble if it got to that point and you will have to undergo extensive treatment, which I will talk about later. But first, Mia, do you want to give us some of the history behind this condition? I would love to. History part of this flesh eating horror story. When we first came up with the topic of this episode, we were both a little worried about like, is there gonna be enough mm -hmm. to like fill out a whole episode? And then I started ending up with a problem of like, oh, I can't contain myself. There's notes too much. Notes too much. This is weirdly enough the shorter version that's like still funny. Mm -hmm. There is there is another version that that's like as long, but it's not it's not funny. It's not interesting to listen to because it's okay. just like more history and I could have we could have a whole episode about this so we could have a series and I also have some fun rounds which and that's the funny part but we'll get to that um, I think I, I know what rant you're talking yeah, about because exactly. you've ranted to me about that like five times oh yeah you see me open up an article and just like oh, oh. <laughs> can I tell you can I tell you um <laughs> but before we get there and we'll get there pretty quick usually in my history segment I have a little bit of about how Historically, many conditions and diseases have been difficult to classify in specificity just because of their, just because of overlapping symptoms. Uh, if something's caused by a fever, for example, it's just, well, everything causes a fever. You know what I mean? Everything causes inflammation. So it's like, it's difficult to classify. But with this one, I weirdly enough don't have that problem, which has been great and also horrible for both those physicians and for my research, which is quite interesting because necrotizing fasciitis the symptoms are very unique compared to many other types of, let's say, gangrenous types of conditions. And we'll get into that as well. But I, I think that that's so interesting. We have been able to point out what the condition is, like you have this condition. Figuring out what causes it has been more of a difficult struggle. Because as you mentioned, this condition is caused by multiple different bacteria and conditions and underlying like factors that all influence whether or not people get it. And that has stripped people up historically. According to a lot of scientific articles that I've read, but that I will tell you I'm not buying entirely, this is part of the rant, this condition has been described by Hippocrates as early as the 5th century BCE. But again, I don't believe that. I don't think this is true. <laughs> I think he have encountered it, but I don't think he saw it specifically. But the claim does come from someone who claims to have a historical like point of view, but who is not a medical historian, but is a doctor, who is comparing symptoms uh, described by him and modern day. And that kind of makes sense. 
For now though, before my rant, let's just say he may have encountered it and that a condition he described, erysipelas, did overlap significantly with necrotizing fasciitis in terms of symptoms and the progression of the condition. He did point out that the worst affected area was oftentimes the perineum or the taint, the gooch, the gooch which is correct, but again, I'm skeptical. The first modern descriptions, that at least are similar enough to state with confidence are referring to necrotizing fasciitis, came from the descriptions from the chief surgeon Jean-Alfred Fournier at Hotel Dieu in Lyon in 1783, which confused me greatly due to the fact of me not knowing that French hospitals are sometimes called hôtels and that this hospital has very recently been renovated into an actual luxury hotel, which Thanks for the confusion for me. Fournier was a dermatologist specialized in venereal disease, and one of the types of necrotizing fasciitis is called Fournier gangrene after him. And I would suggest that no one Googles the term Fournier gangrene because it will make you want to gouge your eyes out. There have also been descriptions like around the same time and at that hospital from a doctor called Claude Potou, uh, which are also like those two doctors worked together to come up with these horrifying descriptions. <laughs> the name for this condition, that we now call necrotizing fasciitis, varied among physicians during this time, either referring to it as an ulcer, because an ulcer can be not just as we think of it today, like in the belly, but also just on the, on the skin or in other types of organs, because it's just a break in, in membranes, or a form of gangrene. But the name eventually landed at la gangrene des hôpitaux, which is very bad French pronunciation, but it means hospital gangrene. And that became one of the more common names around the Western world. And it was named this way due to the fact that it spread and manifested itself within hospitals much more often than anywhere else. It was not categorized with gangrene because they were so similar to each other that it, they could see it as like belonging to the same cause or belonging to the same type of like underlying condition. But rather because it didn't fit with anything else, and one of the end results kind of overlap with gangrene. For those of you who don't know, classic gangrene is caused by necrosis due to the blood supply being cut off from a body part and then resulting cell death. So if you're out with frostbite, for example, and you don't get any blood to your fingers, and the, you, the, the, that blackness, if you get a black finger, for example, that's frostbite, that's necrosis, that's gangrene. But that's caused by a lack of blood, not by bacteria. So they're not very different. Mm. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, that the necrosis in um, necrotic fasciitis is contributed to by lack of blood supply. Because mm. you know how I said that there's thrombosis forming? That leads to the blood supply being disrupted to the tissue. And that contributes to tissue dying more. Mm -hmm. So that is definitely also a contributing factor, but for, yeah, sure, for sure there's also bacteria uh, involved that I'm guessing does not happen in other types of necrosis. Yes, because one of the most, let's say, like flashy symptoms in this condition is pus. Mm. Like there is a lot of pus in necrotizing fasciitis, which there isn't in other types of gangrene, typically. And physicians at the time made it remarkably clear that they can tell the difference and that whatever this is, it's something unique and cannot be confused with other conditions, such as regular gangrene or like gas gangrene, for example, which is also a type of gangrene. It sounds like they were real proud of that. They wanted to make it clear, we know. We know what, what the this fuck this is. <laughs> we don't know many things, but we know this one. <laughs> no, I mean, they thought they... I mean, at the time, they were the most modern aligned people mm -hmm. that had ever existed, so mm -hmm. they thought that they were pretty smart. Um, so treatments during this time, which were still like around the 1800s, like early 1800s, and up until really quite recently, were built on the miasma theory. And so the only standards of practice were to give patients a lot of ventilation and clean surroundings, even if physicians had their own flavor of treatments, depending on the country and university, that could include things like bromide solutions or acid solutions. But good diet, good air, you'll be fine. No, you won't be fine. You won't, you won't, they won't fix it. She's shaking her head at the camera. Yeah, very much so. Because as I mentioned, pus, pus mm. matters here. And one thing that I find so fucking gross is that 
And it's so it's it's extremely significant historically too because attitudes towards pus have changed over time because many physicians believe that pus was a healthy part of the healing process, especially thick and creamy pus. And as such, many treatments encouraged the formation of pus and saw it as a good result, even though we know today pus is more like a result of the immune system mm. fighting. And to and to be clear here, like physicians of this time had the attitude of like more, better, thicker, better, creamier, better. <laughs> I bet I bet they thought that was like the wound cleaning itself or something. Yes, yes, exactly. That's exactly what they. That's exactly what a lot of people thought. I mean, obviously there were some physicians who were like, I'm not sure about this one, folks. Uh, <laughs> it seems like if they have that, it doesn't it smells bad. <laughs> I don't like it. They tend to die soon after. I don't know. <laughs> the professor is just like, quiet boy. <laughs> it's milking creamy. It's good. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Quiet but boy. This, and this kind of stunted treatments a little bit because if they did a treatment and it reduced the pus, they see that as a bad result. Mm. Which today we know is a good result because white and creamy pus is a sign of a staph infection, which oftentimes causes this type of, uh, well, can cause this type of condition. Things began to change, though, slowly during the 19th century, because that's where things start becoming a little bit more interesting in my research, because physicians then described the condition in some ways that were radically different from how we would describe it today, but not in an incorrect way, which I find interesting. So, during the 19th century, medical science leaped forward, due in part to massive military campaigns across Europe, causing wounds and disease. The wars do, innit? And what do military campaigns often end up having in the context of medical history? That's right. Massive hospital tents with poor sanitation, with wounded soldiers who often stomped around in wet and muddy terrain, as well as the bodily fluids of everyone around them. <laughs> so A lot of material for, for medical development. There's so much material. You, legitimately, like that's like a big part of, me of uh, medical history, is mm. wars, mm -hmm. because... Here's like, all these problems that you get to solve. You can, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so you can go to a hospital in a big mm. city and be like, yeah, we have 150 patients. We get about 15 every day. And like, it goes around. And it's just do you like, want 5,000? Yeah. Do you, or do you want half a million over Fester, the span of a weekend? Festering wounds? Uh, trench foot? You can do all sorts SDIs? of tests here. Yeah. So around the early 1800s, doctors, nurses, and scientists mainly saw necrotizing fasciitis occur in these contexts. And they described it with pretty much the exact symptoms as we would. For example, the ship's surgeon of the British naval ship HMS Saturn described how he saw it sometime around 1800, unfortunately undated. The symptoms advanced by two hasty strides to be arrested. The gland of the penis soon dropped off. The whole body of the penis passed quickly through. Inflammation to complete gangrene and mortification, and separated at its very cura. The whole length of the urethra to the bulb sloughed away, and also the scrotum, leaving the testes and spermatic vessels barely covered with cellular substance. He died. Which is also... Wait, hold on. What I have, que I yes, have questions. Please I do. have questions. Um, I also love, love ending a quote, a uh, patient description. He, he died. He died. <laughs> oh, that's awful. Okay. The whole body of the penis passed quickly through. What does that mean? No, it passed quickly through inflammation to complete gangrene oh, to mortification. Inflammation and to that's complete separation. gangrene. And mortification. What is a crura? Crura separated at its very crura. Like the like the um, the base, like the connection between like the the body. Is that what it's called? Like uh, how do you call it? Like uh, the, body. the foundation. The, sh <laughs> the root. The root. Yeah, the dick root. <laughs> is that what that's called? Is that the medical term for the so. root? I don't think it's. I think the crura is just like uh, the name for like any type of like connection mm. point. Okay, okay. Rather than like specifically that, I could be wrong though. Okay, the whole length. The whole length of the penis. The whole length of the ure urethra to the bulb, sloughed away. Mm hmm. God, and also and also the scrotum. <laughs> You're obsessed with this patient description. But no, I just, I, there's so many, there's so much. There's just so much. <laughs> Barely covered with cellular substance. The testes were like degloved. Yeah. Horrible. Because that's, okay. that, that's what happens. That's horrible. Uh, horrific, I, I know. Ha I hate that. And so far, this is accurate to like describing the progression of the, of the condition as we would today. 
But physicians would also describe the condition as having been contagious, describing it spreading like wildfire in specific camps or hospital ships while leaving others unaffected. The reason for this is, of course, that while the condition, necrotizing fasciitis, in itself is not contagious, and we all have the bacteria all around us that can cause it, the sheer amount of bacteria is significantly larger in individuals who have the condition, and if nurses and doctors don't practice good sanitation, those bacteria can easily spread from one patient to another, especially if a significant amount of the patients happen to have sores or open wounds, which of course is maybe the most common type of injury in a war hospital. And remember, this time germ theory is not the mainstream yet. So mm. reusing bandages mm. is common. Using like uh, barely washing bandages is common. But outside of the military, cases remained rare and sporadic and very, very rarely had like outbreaks. And if there were outbreaks, it would affect four or five different people at a time, not thousands as, would, as was described, for example, in the Peninsular War. But then enter this podcast's glorious golden god, germ theory. I can see you made a note here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Angelic music in bold. In bold. So I guess this is my cue to add uh, to add a little uh, sound effect. Yeah, added post. stage directions to the editing. <laughs> Thank you. In the late 19th century, things kick into high gear. I'm not going to go through the whole history of germ theory. We don't have time for that. This is specifically about necrotizing fasciitis. So we're going to talk about a man called Theodore Billroth, Austrian surgeon and musician, enemy of Wagner and close personal <laughs> friend to Johannes Brahms. He observed and isolated a chain-forming bacteria from pus and named it Streptococcus, which later scientists would further isolate and classify into what we today know as, among others, Streptococcus pyogenes, which is one of the main bacteria behind necrotizing fasciitis, as you mentioned. And Streptococcus is named because of how it was observed by uh, Bill Roth, because strepto in Greek means chain and coccus means berry or like seed. Mm -hmm. and it looks like a chain of seeds. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm very curious about this beef that he had with Wagner. Uh, that's a whole other thing that I like. But I need, discovered. I need to, can you just give me like the TLDR? Oh. Like <laughs> what's the beef? So in the late 19th century, there's like a conflict in classical music and Brahms is on one side and Wagner is on the other. There's a few other people who he also has beef with. Um, and he doesn't like this, the type of musical innovations that they're bringing to the classical music scene. Whereas Brahms and him, like they have other types of innovations that they think will lead classical music into another way. It has a name, but I forgot what it's called. I, I desperately want to look it up what it is now. So Okay, but it wasn't personal. It was like... Yeah, it, it was it, like two schools of thought within m music. Yes, and but like Wagner was like his specific enemy, <laughs> which, which I found, <laughs> at this find point, very funny. At this point, it 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 became personal. I, I will say though, like in the sources that I read, he was remarkably uh, pleasant in his discussions compared with many other people within that beef. Okay. So I I would think maybe Wagner was like fucking Bill Roth, piece of shit, cook, and he's like, as per my last as per my last letter. email. <laughs> Yeah, it's a letter, probably, not email. Let's see. This was called the War of the Romantics. And he also opposed the, um, the musical innovations of Franz Liszt. Okay. <laughs> I, love it it, when artists, the, yeah, I love it when artists have um, side enemies. <laughs> but I, I do think, just to quickly build on that, I, but I do think it is interesting that like in the late 1800s, if you were involved in something, you were involved in many things. Like, yeah. not only surgeon disco but, discover mm -hmm. stuff the carcass, have some beef with Wagner. I guess there weren't many things you could do back then. You had to find an occupation. You didn't have, like, a phone to scroll through I guess nine I, hours every day. Yeah, I guess, like, you spend your free phone time bad, being guys. like... Phone bad, guys. You heard it here first. <laughs> Put down your phone, take out a pen and paper, and write a rude letter to Richard Wagner <laughs> and Make an criticizing enemy. Live him a little. for his innovations in romantic music. Yeah. <laughs> Make an enemy. 
I wish I kind of want I want an enemy. Who feel, wants to be my enemy? I feel like yeah, I feel like you would be the enemy. What do you mean? Do I have villain vibes? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I do. All right. Okay. This, along with many other achievements we don't have time to get into, led to treatments being shifted with microbiological considerations in mind. Particularly, the ideas of British surgeon Joseph Lister, who advocated for sterilizing medical equipment, as well as those of Belgian surgeon Antoine de Page, who advocated during the First World War for leaving wounds unsutured until the wounds were free from streptococci bacteria in culture tests so that you don't like accidentally close it up with like a festering infection mm. going on because that can lead to more complications later on. This last part actually of like leaving wounds open um, was heavily criticized by like so many surgeons mm. because they were like, what do you like open wound treatment doesn't work. Like what are you stupid? You're going to get maggots. Like, like insects are going to come. Like what are you doing? You're dumbass. Um, and he had to bring out like four different research institutes and have graphs and statistics. So like the first time he comes out properly with like an advocation for how to do this, not only is he like, I think we should do this so we don't get staph infections. And here's my, here's the receipts. He, he brings so many like charts and being like, oh, you have a hand injury. This is the chart. You have a foot injury. Here's the other chart. Like <laughs> put everyone to the period. Yeah. Legitimately. Like how big is the wound? Okay. How long has it been open? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We leave it over for this long. We do this test. Ba, 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 ba. He has a whole thing. Mm -hmm. And this actually reduced infections in every single type of injury from between 40 percent, like it reduced mortality from between 40 percent in, in injuries on the torso, I think, to up to 90 percent when the injury was in the extremities, which is... It's pretty good. It's pretty good. He is actually recognized among many people as one of the people who may have had the largest impact in the medical community in terms of lives saved just because of his innovations. Because if this didn't happen, people would keep like doing mm -hmm. up. They would get like their sutured up wounds infected and people more, way more people would die. Yeah. So, you know, shout out to him. Then, of course, in 1942, penicillin was discovered. Another golden god of this podcast. Angelic music. Uh, and by 1945, just too late. Uh, antibiotic treatments became part of the standard practice in treatment. And the rest, as they say, is history. But why do they call it flesh-eating bacteria? And why am I scared of this specific condition? I hear you ask. It got its nickname, flesh-eating bacteria, after a minor outbreak in the United Kingdom in 1994, which infected four, maybe six people, and killed two in a series of connected infections, which was picked up by the UK media and spread around in a media storm. Tabloids were warning of a new disease that eats your flesh, called killer bug, galloping gangrene, which is just like, okay, and flesh-eating virus, uh, because the UK press is full of idiots who don't know anything about science and who just want to scare you into looking at the news every two minutes. And they still do this, by the way. Every news agency in the world wants you to be scared so that you keep looking at the news forever. So, you know. And this here, to wrap our way back around to go full circle, is where the tenuous connection between Hippocrates and this condition became, in my humble opinion, wildly exaggerated. Because in order to push back against this media storm, which became like an international like mania, basically, a lot of scientists and physicians had to make it clear to people that this was not a new illness by any means. But before 1994, basically no one who is writing about necrotizing fasciitis and its history made any connection to Hippocrates. Even though it, it got its name, Necrotizing Fasciitis, I think in 1954, but no one before 1994 actually mentioned Hippocrates. Now, I want to rant about Hippocrates. <laughs> I have to say... So here we go. I have to say, <laughs> Hipp Hippocrates does describe a condition. I had to go through fucking his goddamn texts in one of those like digitized like Greek writings manuscripts and like review multiple different translations of Hippocrates' texts from Greek into modern-day English just so I could see, like, what the fuck he wrote. <laughs> and, like... That's commitment. Listen, I do, we do research on this podcast. We don't, fuck, we don't go to Wikipedia, because Wikipedia straight up says, like, oh, yeah, Hippocrates knew about it. No, he didn't. I refuse to believe it. 
I, because here's what I will say. He describes a condition that has very similar symptoms and very similar progressions. And he probably did encounter necrotizing fasciitis. Like it's uh, uh, epidemi epidemiology here states that like there are no new viruses in any stretch. Even though like in the early 1800s, a lot of physicians then were like, what the fuck is this shit? But that's probably because they were working with soldiers and big wars only happen now. So while he may probably have encountered the condition, we can't say that he discovered or connected or uh, perfectly described necrotizing fasciitis because what he does describe is basically a type of necrosis. Mm. But that can be any type of necrosis, mm. not necessarily this type of necrosis. Mm. And I just find it like interesting and annoying. I just think it's interesting. I just think it's conveniently like surprising that the first major modern source that basically everyone else refers to with this claim just so happens to not include the segments of Hippocrates' writings that describe the disease as sometimes starting with a fever and then developing sores or talking about how it very like often occurs without a sore being involved. Even though we know that like, yes, it can happen from a bruise, but that's significantly rarer. And he connects it specifically also to like a lot of wet weather going on, which could be connected, could not be. So he probably did encounter it, but let's not pretend he managed to isolate it or describe it specifically. And it annoys me here because a dangerously surprising amount of medical papers seem to imply that he knew what streptococcus was, or that he is connecting multiple different diseases as being necrotizing fasciitis. But that's just historically inaccurate. So I'm not sure you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> but I hate it when otherwise smart people do bad science documentation because it's not in their field. I had to listen to doctors and statisticians lecture me about how to use their basic terminology so we didn't get it wrong when I studied history. The least you can do is make sure you don't say that Hippocrates wrote about bacteria, because he didn't. However, to drag us back on the topic of media storms... Um, I feel like I'm getting a lecture from my mom <laughs> right now. Well, it's like many. I'm like sitting, like I'm feeling guilty for for some reason. I didn't write those papers. Like, but okay, but like, why am I scared? <laughs> here's here's another thing I need to complain about. Like, legitimately, a lot a lot to complain about. This episode has been a nightmare to research mm. because most of the sources describing necrotizing fasciitis are recent, from modern day doctors talking about modern things, having and they have a little bit of a history segment. And they write that history segment badly. They Every... do. I've seen the papers. It's very like loosey goosey, whatever. Hippocrates, whatever did whatever. Like they, I, I, I've seen the papers. They can definitely put a little more thought into how they phrase things. But the thing that really fucked me up in this one, and here's the thing: we're gonna, we might get a lot of comments from people being like, "Well, I looked it up and I found someone else was the first person to describe uh, necrotizing fasciitis." That probably true because every single scientific paper that I've read on this credits someone else. Mm. No one has an, any idea, at least in the STEM field, who was the first one to credit to accurately describe necrotizing fasciitis. So I just went with the earliest one and mm -hmm. looked him up, and see, he seemed reasonable. Mm. Uh, but but <laughs> do better history, doctors. Fuck. However. Again, read, a, read a book. Read a book. Media, but we have to go back to media storms. So Jesus Christ. This, the media storm thing, that still happens frequently today. Despite this condition affecting thousands of people every single year, occasionally there will be one case that makes national news. And the media picks it up, and they add more scary names to it, and that's probably how you, dear listener, have heard of it. And suddenly, every municipality in the Northern Hemisphere has to deal with calls from scared parents who worry their kids are gonna die if they go swim in a lake. They'll be fine, probably. But let me tell you what would happen if your kid did swim in a dirty lake and if your kid isn't fine. Oh. So firstly, the risk factors might be assessed, specifically whether you belong to a high risk group. So again, risk factors include advanced stage obesity, drug use, diabetes mellitus, and anything else that might cause immune suppression. The doctor might ask whether you've recently had any soft tissue trauma in the form of laceration, insect, animal, human bites, 
I, I, I love saying, how you specify I, human bites. I know. I found human bites and I'm, I'm really like, I'm really stuck on that. They're apparently, human bites are apparently like real bad to get. Many yeah. animals are better to be bit from than a human. I, I don't know about that one, but we do have dirty mouths. We do. So yeah, so human bites, recent surgery, injection sites, and, and drug use. Did I already say that? I think you said this I think I've previously. said that. However, many cases remain idiopathic. Many times, we don't know. We don't know what how you got it. The doctor might perform a clinical examination of the site of infection. There is a test that is done called the finger test, and it sounds bad, uh, and it is bad. The finger test. The finger test. Um, so a, lot of, a lot of medicine is just fingers going somewhere, <laughs> and a doctor being like, oh, that's weird. Gloves go on, uh, Vaseline goes on. Okay, so... A two centimeter incision is made in the affected area and an index finger is pushed into the tissue. An index finger. I love how they refer to the index finger. (sighs) The test checks three things. Firstly, whether the finger passes through the subcutaneous tissue without resistance. Oh! (laughs) Because it needs to. There needs to be some resistance, but but if it's rotting, I guess there's not. No. Oh, that's horrible. Um, That and also how the tissue responds to the pressure. There is a word for this. Friable tissue, meaning that the tissue rips and tears easily uh, or crumbles. I also also found the word crumble. Tissue is not supposed to crumble. Um, The finger test is also meant to test whether fluid seeps from the skin, specifically pus, and this is specific for this condition, dishwasher colored liquid. There we go. Do you want to know what the dishwasher liquid is? No, but I'm going to know anyway. It's liquefied tissue. It's like a like a watery oatmeal <laughs> that comes mm. out. Lastly, the finger test is meant to ascertain whether the wound bleeds. So if you're scared of blood, don't worry, because necrotizing fasciitis does not bleed. Yeah, I was about so to say, like, if you bleed, that's good yeah, in this case. But, I mean, at least, you know, you don't like blood, you're not going to see it. <laughs> yeah, because your blood vessels are rotting. Yeah. Other things the doctor might look at is the adherence of the tissue to the fascia. Of course, poor adherence would indicate that the condition is advanced, as the fascial plane would be damaged. After that, the doctor might order some lab work. Blood and tissue samples would be tested to determine the presence and the identity of bacteria, or whatever pathogen might be causing it. Um, I mean, it's mostly bacteria, but like if you have fungus. Blood samples would also be tested for hemoglobin and leukocyte count, as well as C-reactive protein, which is a protein that is made by the liver, and if the levels are high, that indicates that there's a lot of inflammation in the body. The levels of sodium and creatinine may also be tested, which can be an indication of kidney dysfunction. Kidney failure is very common Mm. in the later stages of this condition. I can imagine, like, they must be working overtime to try to filter shit, right? Mm. I can't imagine the liver is very happy either. Nah. I mean, it... Nah. Nah. <laughs> um, no, in the later stages of this disease, I mean, no organ is happy. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what. But the liver... The gallbladder is just like, I'm fine. <laughs> the liver, the kidneys. Um, I Okay, can I also have a, little, a mini rant? Please. Mini tiny rant. I also thought it was a bit challenging to do... Uh, research for this episode because I mostly found medical papers, not biomedical papers, but medical paper papers, which are yep. case studies where they, they they don't tell you why shit happens. They just tell you like the patient uh, case description. They tell you what they did and they tell you what the outcome is, which is cool. But for me, who didn't know a lot about this particular condition, it was really difficult to understand. Like, why do you do this test? Yeah. Why does the kidney suffer? It was really hard to get like ans- like whys and hows. Yeah, no, um, I, I get it. If the, the people who write about necrotizing fasciitis, both of us have co- sort of come to the conclusion that like, why are why are they writing everything differently than everyone else? Yeah, I, it was weird. I never, I've never had this problem. I almost felt a little bit like, <laughs> like is this a new like branch of like medicine that just does things on its own way? <laughs> Necrotizing fasciitis specifically? I, I almost felt like a little bit embarrassed. I was like, am I supposed to like notice? Like is this are they just assuming that everybody knows why kidney dysfunction happens in this particular case? Yeah, I didn't have that because like yeah. when when the writers of those papers were like being especially like dumb, mm-hmm. they were just like <clears throat> 
Hippocrates probably wrote this. And they just add the word probably, which <laughs> probably. I didn't. I didn't know you could just add the probably in the you say probably, first couple then, of sentences in your scientific shit. paper. Yeah. So following these basic tests, an X-ray, CT scan, or MRI might identify areas of fluid collection, inflammation, or gas within soft tissue because some of the bacteria also um, produce gas. However, these tests take time, so you'd probably be prescribed treatment already, as time is of essence. You'd probably be has. What? It's always bad. It's always bad when when there is a condition that's like we could do tests to figure out what this is. We don't have time. <laughs> we need to get <laughs> we to started on something. We're not, we're we'll not figure sure. out the details yeah. as we go, yeah. but like we gotta go. Yeah, so you would probably be hospitalized and most likely admitted to an intensive care unit. Yes. Um, and given a high dose of powerful intravenous antibiotics. And firstly, you'd probably be given a broad spectrum antibiotic like penicillin or clindamycin. And then once the pathogen is identified, you transition to an antibiotic that is more specific. Yeah. After that, the fun part would come, the debridement, which is where the necrotic tissue is removed. And it's very important that all necrotic tissue is removed because it forms an ideal medium for bacterial growth and prevents tissue regeneration. And there are a few debridement methods, but the method that seems to be the most used, the most popular, is sharp debridement, which involves trimming away tissue using sterile scissors and forceps. Just cut it all away. Other types of debridement include autolytic, mechanical, surgical, and wouldn't you know it, larva therapy. We love those. We talked I, about that in a previous episode. I love it when previous topics come up. Love it. It's so like nice. seeing an old friend. <laughs> larva. We talked about that. Little maggot. Little maggot. Um, that's now our bugs as drugs episode, if you haven't heard it. It's, it's a, a good, good one. one. Jinx. In addition to debridement, other treatments such as hyperbaric oxygen therapy are sometimes used. And this treatment involves the administration of oxygen in a high-pressure chamber in order to increase arterial oxygen content and tissue oxygen pressure for the purpose of oxygenating dying tissue. Take a shot every time I say oxygen. Additionally, the therapy can improve antibiotic efficiency, improve leukocyte killing efficiency, and decrease inflammation, all of which improves clinical outcomes. However, this type of therapy comes with a number of risks, such as pressure-induced damage to the middle ear, Acute brain oxygen toxicity, which can cause seizures. Yeah. <laughs> and pulmonary oxygen toxicity. But the good thing is those things resolve when the oxygen treatment is terminated. So you might have seizures for like a little bit, but then they turn the off the oxygen off mm. and you're fine. I think it's so interesting that they put you in... In, in, in the chamber. In the, yeah, in the oxygen chamber. <laughs> well, it's... Ne it's necrotizing the... flesh, oxygen chamber time. Just like, oh, okay. <laughs> Weird. Well, but you know, I guess it has it's like, to be like a different pressure. Yeah, and I, because I guess it's... Oh yeah, of course, that's why. Intravenous immunoglobulin therapy may also be applied, which means that the patient receives pooled antibodies from donors in order to stabilize their immune system. This is done in some hospitals. Not all... It's not like a standardized procedure. It's a little unclear how efficient it is, but mm. it can be done. As far as outcome goes, it all depends on how early the condition is diagnosed. If treated early, you can survive it with minimal scarring. However, if you wait too long, you might end up with significant tissue loss, in some cases amputation, and in some severe cases death. Like I said, the fatality rate is 25 to 30% and is mostly caused by renal failure, septic shock, and multi-organ failure. So it's definitely something to take seriously. Of course, prevention is better than treatment. And since this condition is caused by bacteria penetrating the deep layers of your skin, the best thing to do is avoiding getting puncture wounds or any sort of cuts in your skin if just possible don't get hurt idiot. i like i know it's kind of like a silly just don't get just don't get cuts it's not like everyone yeah it's not like we're getting cuts on purpose but like you know that's the first thing that they yeah. tell you secondly if you do end up having skin injuries it's important to avoid bodies of water both natural and also swimming pools or hot tubs hot tubs in particular breeding grounds breeding grounds for bacteria i I'm, yeah. I'm never getting in a hot tub in my life. Mm -hmm. Also, just, you know, flesh-eating disease aside, you are just... Sitting in a little sitting in a stew, stew of, with, like, strangers. Yeah. Like a there's swimming... no new water coming in. Like, you're no. sitting in the same, like... And it's so, it's so little water. Like, a swimming pool, you know, at least a little diluted. But the... But the hot, it's like you were in a, in a bathtub with, like, a guy you've never met. You don't know, you don't know him. 
It's I'm, weird. I'm, I'm Don't imagining get a, hot a private hot tub. Hot tub. Why is there a guy in my private hot tub? I was thinking about like a hotel hot tub. Yeah, I get that for sure. Um, but also like, unless it's your hot tub and you're sure that you're cleaning it properly, like you don't, may as, don't you, do you may it. as well yeah then you may as well sit in like a little bucket together with, with your <laughs> a little buddies. bucket okay so yeah i would avoid hot tubs um but if you have skin injuries just don't go in bodies of water and then make sure to keep your wounds clean by washing them with soap and water that's also very important and if it starts hurting and being red and you have flu symptoms please go to the doctor mm -hmm. there it might seem like a really like silly thing to see a doctor for but that's why they're there. So see a doctor if you can. Infections can also sneak up on you. Like they can come from very small things. Like people yeah. think that's like, oh, you, oh, go to the doctor, but it's not serious. Like you maybe have a cut in your hand or something, but like it could be, mm. could be. Mm. I do feel comfortable giving this advice because it's not, it's not medical advice. Like <laughs> clean your I, cuts. <laughs> clean your cut. This I don't is know. medical advice. As I was writing this, I was like, am I, am I sort of veering into medical advice territory? But I, the way I see it, I'm just playing the role of like the, the the older sister who's like scaring you straight into cleaning your cuts. Yeah. Um, so I I feel like that's okay. Yeah. So clean your cuts. While rare, you do not want to get flesh eating disease. Ooh. Drop mic. Finish episode. <laughs> um, clean your cuts. Clean your cuts. And with that... With that. And with that, I can only assume all of you are now frantically examining every little tiny cut and bruise you might have. But don't worry, because according to some ancient writers that may or may not have actually described the disease, it should have progressed so rapidly that you should notice symptoms by the end of this episode. It's not, it, does, it progresses really quickly, not that quickly. Three to four days. Yeah, exactly. This is not... That episode, the episode is not that long. Thank God. I know, right? Uh, but earlier writers did say that it progressed in a matter of minutes, which is like, okay, exaggerating much. Yeah. They love doing that. That's that's not true. Okay. Well, if you liked this episode, you know, rate us, review us. Give uh, comments. Give comments. We love the comments. Support us on Patreon if you can and want to. Otherwise, I'm Salem. I'm Mia. You're Mia. And <laughs> Thank you. You're, you're Salem. <laughs> And your um, podcast. And your podcast. And we will see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>